and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Liverpool Echo, Hull Daily Mail and Lancashire Live. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective and outside of the Westminster bubble, you're in the right place. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons, bringing you another episode of analysis and political commentary from the North. Our guest this week is the author of a new book setting out the dramatic history of the North and the lesser known figures who've made our region what it is today. And this week we're back on the local election trail and heading to the Wirral, where things are set to be closely fought on May the 5th. We'll be hearing from local democracy reporter George Morgan about the big issues for voters in this part of Merseyside. So it's definitely a very split cows, and then you've got this sort of more interesting factor coming in um, over the past few years, which is the Greens gaining a real foothold there. And, um, and if the Greens can tap into Labour's traditional areas, as they are doing, that really shakes things up. I mean, will the Conservatives be narrowly the largest party? Now, there's a lot to be proud of for those of us lucky enough to live in the north of England, and our region can rightly claim to have made its mark on the world through its pivotal role in the Industrial Revolution, the music of the Beatles and Britpop, and the writing of the Brontes and Wordsworth. But there's a whole lot more to the history of the North than that, and it's brought to life in a fantastic new book out this week. Northerners, a history from the Ice Age to the present day is described as the defining biography of Northern England and lays out the dramatic events that created the North, the waves of migration, invasions and battles, and the transformative changes wrought by the global economy and European culture. So I'm very pleased to be joined on the podcast today by the book's author, the journalist Brian Green. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rob. It's nice to have you on. So um, I think to say the book's fascinating would be an understatement. I'm really enjoying reading it and it's full of vibrant detail and interesting characters. And I know you're going to tell us about some of the less well-known Northern historical figures in the book, but can you firstly just tell us a bit more about why you decided to write it in the first place? And, and also just the kind of research that goes into, into something like this. Well, I've, I've been thinking about it for about 10 years and I guess two things came together. Most of, most of my working life, I've, um, I've been involved in British and regional affairs, writing about them for the FT or editing a Scottish newspaper. And so I've had a lifelong interest in, in regional affairs and I'm a northerner. And as a kid, I was absolutely history mad, um, which I've come back to a bit as I've got older. So bringing all those things together, it was just a natural subject for me to think of. And, uh, and I was astonished to discover that it's hardly ever been done. There's only ever been one general history of the North published, and that was more than 30 years ago. That's really interesting. And how easy is it to find out? Uh, I mean, because obviously your book goes all the way back to pre-Roman times, back you know uh, in the, the BC period. Like, is it easy to find source material about about that? How do, how do you go about uh, sort of researching that? You know, the further back periods of Northern history. The further back periods are the hardest, especially with the the prehistory stuff. There wasn't there weren't a lot of um, a lot of books that obviously dealt with the North specifically. There are lots of general books about um, prehistory, but not so many about North. So I was looking at lots of um, lots of heritage websites and archaeological websites to uh, to find out which which digs and excavations uh, around the North and around England um, were relevant to the North's history. That was that was quite fascinating to do. That something I'd never done before. Yeah, and. Why the North, particularly? Obviously, you're you're a Northerner yourself. You're you're based in Greater Manchester, I think. And um, it, was, was have you always been interested in 
the North as a place and how it came to be the way the way it is. Yeah, I mean, I've got a very broad interest in uh, British regional affairs and national affairs as a whole, and um, I'm a Northerner, so I've always had a sense of of the North as a whole. When I was a kid, my father uh, was the uh, was sales manager of a small cotton textiles wholesaler, and at half terms, he used to uh, take me on his trips around the North. So I got a sense of the place. Uh, as an entity beyond the city I was living in. So I'd go to Doncaster, Hull, Liverpool, and the North Midlands as well. So I got to see quite a lot of places and it just gave me a real, real, real sense of the North and its and the feel of it. Yeah, absolutely. Now you've singled out three uh, influential and important Northerners who might not be household names, but still have hugely interesting stories to tell from your book. Uh, and the first, taking them chronologically is actually a Roman emperor. Uh, so can you explain to our listeners who Emperor Septimius Severus is and why he was so fascinating? Yes, I, I, I picked him. He was one of uh, six or possibly seven Roman emperors who uh, visited the north of England while they held supreme power. And he's the second after Hadrian who had come to build his wall. Um, so it was a few years later. Um, Septimius Severus um, ruled the empire from a base in Ibaracum or York um, from 208 AD until he died there in 211. And he fought two big campaigns in Caledonia to try and subdue the uh, the Scottish tribes. Um, and he's a fascinating character in many ways. Amongst other things, he um, he's known as the African Empire, Emperor, African Emperor. So he's the, the mixed-race son of a pr- provincial family that came from present-day Libya. Um, and I think he was uh, possibly trying to, came here to try to get his unruly sons out of the temptations of Rome. They were called Gita and Caracalla. And Gita he put in charge of administering southern Britain. And Caracalla came with him to York and fought the northern campaigns with him. Um, but after he died, uh, they became joint emperors and Caracalla became one of the most cruel and tyrannical emperors, uh, starting with ordering the execution of his father's imperial household attendants in York. And there are some some 30 skeletons found decapitated at York in 2004, and they're thought possibly to have been those. Crikey, that's uh, interesting. So I guess um, a Roman emperor ruling over the whole empire from York, I suppose that was one of the periods in history where Yorkshire and the north of England was very much at the centre of of everything and it didn't what obviously there's there's a few times in the north's history where that is where that is the case but that was what that was one of them yeah I think that's one of the important things about 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 Severus is that um around that time um the Romans split Britannia into two self-governing provinces uh, and the northern one was called Britannia Inferior, so-called because it's furthest from Rome, um, and it covered northern England and Scotland. And it's one of the few times in history that northern England has been a self-governing entity. Um, it's not entirely clear whether it started under Severus himself or under his son, um, but it, it, it may well have been his idea. He'd already split Syria in a, in a similar way, so it may well have been him. And that definitely was a a high point in the the history of the north in terms of its influence. And also, um, it was a military region. And um, uh, during the third century, um, it was a very turbulent time in the Roman Empire. And you got lots of 
soldiers becoming emperors and they poured resources into the military which must have helped northern England at that time. Absolutely. So um, the next of the trio that you've picked out from your book is one of the leading women of her age, but someone who isn't perhaps as well known as uh, Emmeline Pankhurst and her fellow suffragettes in the Victorian era. So, uh, yeah, Josephine Josephine Butler, what can you tell us about, about her? Yeah, Josephine Butler um, um, uh, definitely ought to be better known. She's arguably the most effective campaigner for women's rights of the 19th century. Uh, she was born in Northumberland. Um, and she um, became a campaigner as a, as a result of a personal tragedy. Um, her fourth child died in a fall from a banister. And after that, she said she became possessed with an irresistible urge to go forth and find some pain keener than my own, to meet with people more unhappy with myself. Um, and it was difficult not to, not difficult to find misery in Liverpool. She and her husband moved to Liverpool and began creating hostels for um, women in need. And it grew from there and she mounted all kinds of campaigns. In particular, uh, she succeeded in ending coverture, which is whereby a, a woman's legal rights were subsumed by her husband's on manage. And, and she also succeeded in criminalizing child prostitution and human trafficking. Um, she was a staunch feminist, but she was also a passionate Christian. Her favourite phrase was, God and one woman make a majority. And the, the suffragist militant, militant Fawcett considered Butler to be the most distinguished English woman of the 19th century. And the final uh, person from the, the three that you picked out, uh, I think the name George Formby is one people might recognise, but you wanted to tell us a bit about George Formby Sr. rather than George Formby Jr. Why was he so interesting? Yeah, most people know a bit about George Formby Jr. and may have seen his films. But the, the reason I picked George Formby Sr. is that he he was a he was one of um uh, one of the best known of a, a rich stream of northern and particularly Lancashire music hall comedians, and he exemplifies what was going on at the, the, in the towards the end of the nineteenth century, beginning of the twentieth century. We, uh, with the Industrial Revolution, uh, the prosperity was starting to seep down and. Um, real incomes were rising and people were starting to get a bit of leisure time. So we saw the growth of various leisure industries, including professional sport created in the north of England, uh, and also the music hall was very, very important to northerners. And George Forby Sr. was one of the very biggest music hall comedians. He was born in poverty in Ashton-under-Lyne, and he played a set of characters on stage, including one called John Willie, who was an archetypal gormless Lancashire lad he was accident prone but always muddling through and he had a cane twirl and a duck-like walk which allegedly inspired Charlie Chaplin. Uh, He was not well, Uh, he spent his life battling against consumption and he incorporated that into his act. He made light of it by with little asides like Coffin better tonight, Coffin summit champion and he was always billed as the Wigan Nightingale a reference to his croaky voice. And in fact, when when he died in 1921, his son used parts of the father's act when starting his own stage career. And once he had got himself established, he also then changed his name to George Formby. And George Formby Jr., as we know, went on to be the ukulele playing star of lots of British comedy films in the 1930s and 1940s. Yeah, it's interesting, I think, that uh, George Formby 
Jr. So his 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 sort of shtick, at least initially, was quite similar to his father's sort of playing a gormless Lancashire innocent yeah, who yeah, sort of yeah, gets into yeah, was, into problems and then still manages to succeed. So uh, I guess there was a, a you know that that presumably was quite an appealing thing to offer to the the public at that time. Yeah, yeah, it seemed it it worked, and I think he he would probably uh, gingerly adopted it to see if he could do it. And once he, the, his father's routines had worked, he recognised that he had a certain talent himself. So he adopted the name and started um, started branching out on his own. Now, there's a striking line at the end of your book when you're describing the 21st century in the North, which I'll read, read to you now. It says, uh, Northerners could be forgiven a weary sigh as once again a government pledged measures to close an economic divide that has become an increasingly pressing political issue. Each administration has introduced new policies while doing little to evaluate and learn from what has worked or not worked in the past. It is a cycle that the North appears doomed to repeat. Now, obviously, on the Northern agenda, we tend to focus on the North's present and its future rather than its past. But has researching this book given you a different perspective on uh, the sort of political discourse that we currently have, things like levelling up and the north-south divide and how we how we tackle those th- those economic economic divides yeah i mean obviously in in, in my working life I, I came across this quite a lot and i was aware of the some of the history of all the past schemes there have been to level up they started um with stanley baldwin the conservative prime minister in 1928 he created a thing called the industrial transference board which aimed to retrain workers to take jobs in expanding industries but that got criticised because it was sucking talent from the depressed areas. So after that, the kind of the reverse happened. And the broad, the general pattern has been schemes to try to bring work to the people in the places they live, rather than trying to get people to to move to different parts of the country. So he started things like Ramsay MacDonald's Special Areas Act in 1934, which designated Cumberland, Tyneside, and most of County Durham as for special incentives. And you've had a, a, a stream, absolute stream of such things over over decades. And some of them have worked OK and um, <coughs> up to a point and for a while. Um, but overall, I think you'd say they were inconsistent, sometimes half hearted. And there has been this tendency every time there's a new government, they threw it, threw away everything the previous government has done. And it even happens within governments as well. So today we're talking about um leveling up and but the government stopped talking about the northern powerhouse i've no idea what happened to the northern george osborne's northern powerhouse idea there seems a complete lack of continuity and it's a a, and it's a a big contrast i found was looking at the um what has been the world's most successful regeneration effort of the past uh, few decades which is the revival of eastern germany since the early 1990s i mean the factors you had at work there were um importantly well big resources a um partnership between public and private sectors and central and regional and local governments uh quite a decentralized decision making structure and also crucially the the programs they devised in the early 90s uh, were cross-party and were designed to last for decades and they've stuck with them and they'll stick with them until it's it's reached parity um, we never come anywhere near that in the UK. No, that's a pretty uh, stark uh, contrast, isn't it? I mean, um, 
I guess it's a, an obvious point, really, but the North-South divide is not a recent thing. I mean, it, it, it dates back to as far back as you could, as you want to look, isn't it? Because of the sort of topography of of the country. Um, and is that there was only a brief period in the 19th century during the Industrial Revolution where the North's economy was growing faster than that of the South, for like the the rest of the North's history, there has been that divide with 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 London and the, and the South East, doesn't there? Uh, pretty much, yes. Uh, historians sometimes talk about a Jurassic divide. There's a, a ridge of Jurassic limestone that stretches from Dorset in the South to the Yorkshire coast, and to the northwest of it, you tend to get uh, what is sometimes called a Highland zone with harder rocks, um, less fertile good mainly for pastoral economies, raising uh, for for growing, for raising sheep and other forms of livestock. And you tended historically to get single farms or small hamlets, whereas southeast of it was richer farmland. You've got bigger villages growing uh, more crops and on the whole tend to be richer. So the North has been fighting those geological and geographical factors for all of its existence. Um, there have been some better periods. There was one in the 12th and 13th century when um, the economies were growing rapidly and the, particularly east, on the east side of the Pennines, the uh, north's population was growing at twice the rate of the south and you got the creation of the great um, monasteries like Revo and Fountains and the start of the woolen industry. But you're right, overall, um, uh, the north was fighting this up to the Industrial Revolution when suddenly those geological factors and geographical factors <clears throat> started to work in its favour. Um, it had uh, coal, uh, minerals, um, fast flowing water uh, and a damp atmosphere which was ideal for spinning fine cotton and wool. And it made the most of that for 100 up to 150 years. But uh, but as you say, since since the um, since the First World War, um, um, Northern England's share of British economic output has dropped from 30% to about 20%. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, I suppose, because uh, people like Andy Burnham and other politicians talk about re reindustrializing the North uh, as a means to boosting its economic prosperity and using the North's natural advantages, its sort of its coast and, uh, and, and other such things to, to try and uh, forge a new a new economy. So I guess it's all it all goes full circle uh, in the end, I suppose. Um, so Northerners is out this week and is available on hardback, ebook and audiobook from Harper North. Uh, Brian Green, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Rob. Now, we're only a few weeks away from the local elections on May the 5th, where voters can have their say on a host of national and local talking points as they choose councillors to represent them. So let's zoom in on some of the most interesting contests we might see across the north. One of the most fascinating elections on Merseyside is likely to be on the Wirral, where the local council is under no overall control with a minority Labour administration. With a third of the 66 councillors to be elected on Wirral Council, it will be the first chance for residents to make their views known at the ballot box about the £20 million in cuts Wirral Council has recently had to make to its budget. Keeping an eye on what is sure to be a very closely fought and finely balanced election is George Morgan, 
Wirral Local Democracy Reporter. So, George, welcome to the podcast. Yes, thanks for having me, Rob. It's uh, good to be here. It's good to have you on. So, what are the big stories you think might come out of this year's local elections for Wirral Council? Well, um, as you say, it is a hung council. Labour have slightly more, four more seats in the Conservatives, and they will probably, barring some kind of strange anomaly, just about cling on to that minority control they currently have of the council. But there could be a hell of a lot of pain for the party there. The Greens have a chance really of sweeping through so many Labour heartland seats, three or four heartland seats for Labour in the east of the borough, in Bergenhead and possibly in Wallasey. Seacombe is the one to watch out for for a potential big shock bearer, a potential big Labour heartland seat to go. So that's the main narrative of the night that we're looking for. Can the Greens really take much or some at least of the east of Wirral and really put Labour on the back foot with regards to to what's coming up next year in 2023, which is all out elections, which could shake up the council again in, in a whole new way. It's interesting because I think when people think about Merseyside uh, as a as a political area, I think people outside the area might think of it as being a very Labour-dominated part of the world. And obviously that is true in the city of Liverpool and other parts of Merseyside. But uh, on Wirral Council, there's quite a few Conservative councillors, aren't there? So it, it's very much not a complete you know, Red-dominated part of the world. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, out of we're all 66 seats or a couple vacant, but Labour has 27. The Conservatives are just four behind with 23. So I think that gives you an idea that the Tories have a huge foothold, predominantly, yes, um, in more affluent parts in the west of the borough and the south of the borough. Also, They also uh, have seats in Wallasey uh, and they're looking to, to make incursions and so further into the west of Wirral. So it's certainly not no, not completely red dominated. Labour are now well off of what they need, the seven extra seats they need to get a majority. I don't think even you know, people who are wildly optimistic within Labour's rank are expecting to return to a majority this year. So it's definitely a very split council. And then you've got this sort of more interesting factor coming in um, over the past few years, which is the Greens gaining a real foothold there. And, um, and if the Greens can tap into Labour's traditional areas, as they are doing, that really shakes things up. I mean, will the Conservatives be narrowly the largest party going forward if Labour continues to lose heartland seats? Will it be an almost three or four-way even if the council with Lib Dems coming into into things as well? It's um it's a strange kind of complexion, a strange sort of politics which could yield you know interesting results on the ground for what I actually care about, which are the policies that affect services people rely on every day. Yeah, absolutely. So talking about services that uh, people rely on every day. Um, obviously, it's been quite well documented on Wirral Council that the authority has suffered quite a lot. Uh, its financial situation is far from healthy. And uh, recently, £20 million worth of cuts were agreed in the budget. I mean, what, what will be the political implications of that, do you think, in the next few weeks? Well, I think the political implications are relatively clear in the sense that this was a budget which Labour and the Tories, in a sense, collaborated um, to pass. There were a couple of libraries, say, which seemed particularly favourable, both the leader of the Tory opposition um, and also in in the ward of the deputy leader uh, of the Labour group. So those parties um, joined together, if you like, to pass the budget. On the other hand, the Greens and the Lib Dems opposed it, and they're very much setting themselves up to go in with a campaign of, we're the parties looking to save your services to hit back avoid the cuts that some would argue perhaps are unnecessary or are harsh or, or are being conducted in the wrong way, hitting the wrong areas, the wrong sort of services. So those, that's the big party split there. But the big argument, I think, is 
can Labour win the idea that this isn't their fault, this is something they've been forced into by a cruel Conservative government? And on the other hand, the Tories will be looking to blame it on Wirral Council itself and the Labour administration, which has been largely in place the last 15 or 20 years. And I think that battle, that, that sort of war of words, is key to seeing where the votes will go on the on a dramatic night, potentially, of the 5th of May. Yeah, absolutely. So any other big uh, local talking points uh, we ought to be looking out for that could, could make an impact? Oh, there are many, many always when it comes to Wirral. Um, the big one in the east of the borough is a massive regeneration project uh, that's sort of ongoing and just coming uh, over the water in Birkenhead. Wirral Waters, a major housing development, is on its way. And there are also massive plans with over £100 million of government money to completely reshape and, and change that town. And again, you sort of have Wirral Council and Labour trying to kind of claim the credit for that from a local regeneration point of view. And the Tories pointed out, that, hold on a minute. You talk about government cuts, and yet most of this money is coming from central government. So that's a massive story. Um, and then people in the Western Wirral will be very familiar with Hoylake Beach um, and the arguments over that. There's a largely uh, local conservative campaign to keep the beach in a state of golden sands as they'll have it, while Labour and the Greens are favouring a different solution, which largely seems to want to keep the beach natural with grass growing on. And there are lots of concerns for residents in Hoylake that destroys the sort of natural economy they've had around the beach. Um, and on the other hand, there are, there are lots of natural and, and green arguments against us. So that's a very kind of typical Wirral to coastal issue, um, but it's incredibly important as far as local people see it there. So those are two of the big issues on the east and the west of the borough, respectively, that they could have a, have a big influence on this election, potentially. I guess at all local elections, when people are deciding who to vote for, it's a combination of things like, you know, the hyper-local issues like, are my bins being taken out, all the way to sort of issues about what, the way the council is run, but also they're having their say on the national picture to some extent. And of course, we've had a variety of national stories that could be in people's minds. I mean, how will national politics affect the vote, do you think? I mean, national politics could ha- have a big effect. I mean, I think if we were talking a year ago, a year and a half ago, we might be saying, well, actually, the Conservatives had a bit of a bounce, a vaccine bounce, as it was called. Keir Starmer was sort of struggling to make an impression. It may be seen as potentially a big opportunity for the Tories to take seats. But I think with Partygate and the loss of the government's popularity in recent months, many people will like, as they traditionally do, uh, to give the government the mid-term kicking. And obviously they can only express that really through local issues, seeing as general ones aren't on the roster, aren't on the ballot paper uh, on this occasion. So that's one thing that definitely could hurt the Conservatives locally. But on the other hand, the Greens seem quite optimistic that Keir Starmer hasn't made an impression in Merseyside, that he hasn't taken on the same kind of radical stances that may be uh, the more traditional electorate in Birkenhead and Wallace. He favour kind of a very left-wing socialist history in that part of the world that might favour the, the sort of principled stances as, as they'd see it that Jeremy Corbyn took rather than a, a kind of seeing it both ways as um, Keir Starmer can be approved of trying to make Labour a more moderate party. So the Greens feel that they can tap into that sort of radical sentiment that they feel Labour's moved away from and, and be the change party, if you like. And that's certainly something they're campaigning strongly on in the east of the borough. George Morgan, thank you very much for your help today. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast and don't forget you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk 
it's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue, and it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. See you next week.